Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, is peyote being culturally appropriated? And after the Women's March in Phoenix over the weekend, we take an historic look at women's activism and social movements. But first, Republican state lawmakers have so far failed to stymie the Democratic governor by blocking the confirmation of her department directors. Now they have their sights set on the state agencies themselves. GOP state Senator Jake Hoffman first made headlines for going after the Arizona Commerce Authority and its lavish spending to wine and dine high-powered business executives. Now he's tightening the leash on many state agencies and could abolish some altogether in what Democrats are calling the weaponization of the sunset review process. Cameron Sanchez from KJZZ's politics desk is covering the story and joins us now with more. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. Okay, so what is the sunset review process? Let's start there. Sure. So all of the state agencies have to go through this process periodically, which is basically where they're reviewed by the legislature and um, recommended for, you know, they get continued for a certain amount of years or they could be terminated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a third option to revise and consolidate, but that's that's very infrequently utilized. Um, so the Auditor General's office is an independent uh, office that goes and reviews state agencies amongst other things. They also review school boards, universities, et cetera. Sure. Um, so they review state agencies in a very comprehensive way and give reports to the legislature to go off of. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a very full schedule, so they can't do every single agency every single year or whatever. So they have to do it, um, you know, some agencies every 10 years or something. Right. OK. So what's happening right now is Republicans in the legislature are sort of shortening those continuations and, and requiring, it sounds like more often they'll be audited. Well, in particular, Republican Senator Jake Hoffman is advising his colleagues to give two-year continuations for several state agencies, and that's relatively short. A normal continuation is more like 10 years or eight years. Um, It's possible to go down to four years or two years, but two years is very, very, very short. Mm -hmm. So that's unusual. Um, not all of the lawmakers are making the same recommendations. So in the House, you're seeing maybe eight-year recommendations for an agency, and then in the Senate, a two-year recommendation for the same agency. So it remains to be seen what that final recommendation is going to look like. Okay. So a two-year recommendation for an agency, like how does that affect how well that agency can do its job, like if it's sort of constantly being audited? Well, if it's a self-audit, then it's an internal review. And so they have to assign people to internally review the practices as they're doing their work, um, which takes a fair amount of time. Um, For the auditor general to come in and do a review also requires a lot of staff and money. And um, you have to have someone in the agency working with the auditor general to sort of provide materials and liaise. So it takes away from their work in Mm -hmm. some manner. So, I mean, it's definitely an inconvenience. They're not really allowed to say that they can't do it because (laughs) they have to do it. But it is... It is a a burden. Yeah. So what do Democrats have to say about this? Why are they calling this a weaponization of the process? Well, Democrats are saying that these agencies, you know, some of them are maybe flawed and should be reviewed, but they shouldn't be 
in danger of termination or have to face these really, really short continuations where they have to constantly be coming back to the legislature um, and asking for another continuation every two years. Mm -hmm. And that they're saying that Republicans are doing this to get back at Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs because now that there's a Republican-controlled legislature and a Democrat in the governor's office, the split legislature, they see this as a way to sort of control the governor or attempt to undermine her. Right, right. And last year there was something similar that happened, right, in terms of Hoffman also going after the Hobbs administration in terms of, you know, like attempting to block some of her nominees and and Hobbs found a way around that, right? So, yes, the directors of the state agencies have to go through the legislature and get approved. That's in statute. And the Senate created a committee specifically for the purpose of vetting those nominees. Mm -hmm. It's the Senate, not the House, for some reason. (laughs) Anyways, so Jake Hoffman was the chair of that committee in the Senate to review Hobbs nominees, and he rejected some. He didn't hear most of them, and then he passed a few, but it wasn't enough for the governor, so she ended up pulling all of them and assigning them different titles. So it was sort of a way to get around him and... In response to that, the Republicans actually filed a lawsuit, which is ongoing. Right. So That's in court now. Yes. What does Senator Hoffman have to say about this? Well, he says that's, you know, it's not a weaponization. He says that that's an absurd conspiratorial claim by the Democrats and that this is just good governance at work. He says that, you know, self-audits are not nearly as good for the legislature as an independent, thorough review by the auditor general's office. Mm-hmm. And for him, it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. What has the governor had to say, though? She called him an extremist, and uh, her spokesperson says, you know, basically what the legislative Democrats did, which is that, you know, this is this is absolutely weaponization. Hmm. I mentioned at the top the controversy over the Arizona Commerce Authority as well, which also involved Senator Jake Hoffman. How does this tie in? Remind us what happened there. Right. So the Arizona Commerce Authority is one of these state agencies, and it has an unfavorable review from its last audit by the Auditor General. And it also is the subject of an opinion by the state attorney general, which says basically the agency violated the law by spending millions of state dollars to wine and dine CEOs and try to attract them to Arizona to do business here because the Arizona Commerce Authority is our, you know, business attraction branch of government. Mm -hmm. And, um, Hoffman filed a bill to dissolve the agency, but Hobbs said in her state of the state speech that it's a priority for her to continue the agency. So it remains to be seen what happens to it. Is it going to be dissolved? Is it going to be continued for a short amount of time or is it going to have something else happen to it? It was recommended for a revise and consolidate. Nobody nobody knows what that means. Okay, we'll find out. Mm -hmm. That is Cameron Sanchez from KGZZ's Politics Desk joining us with all the latest here. Cameron, thanks for your reporting. I appreciate it. Thank you. The city of Phoenix is asking the U.S. Justice Department to end its investigation into the Phoenix Police Department without making them subject to court supervision. The Justice Department began investigating the department more than two years ago amid concerns about discrimination, use of excessive force, unfair treatment of the homeless, and allegations of officers retaliating against protesters. Now that investigation is nearing its end, and many expect the feds to present the department with what's called a consent decree 
decree, which means it would be under the supervision of a monitor, a costly proposition with no definitive end. But city leaders say they are unwilling to give control to federal authorities and in a recent letter to the department asked them to end the investigation through a different kind of agreement. Kevin Robinson is one of those city leaders, a member of the Phoenix City Council, a former Phoenix police officer and a professor in ASU School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. He told me his biggest concern is that the city is being asked to agree to something without having seen the results of the investigation. I think that's unfair. I think it's only right that we get an opportunity to see the substance of their investigation. Let's back up and talk a little bit about what you make of this investigation. Like, do you agree there were problems within the Phoenix Police Department that merited the DOJ coming in? Well, I I know there were there were a great deal of concerns by the public. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself should concern any law enforcement agency. If we are not living up to, at least by you know the public standards, we need to pay attention to those concerns. And so I think that's what has happened. There was a hue and cry about the use of force being used by the Phoenix Police Department. There were some civil rights violations with regard to people's property being taken. Those concerns were raised. So there was a lot a lot of smoke. And so the Department of Justice, by my standards, they've come in to see if there's any fire, Mm. see what's going on there, see if there's a pattern in practice. And so I understand why they are here. And I would like to see before we sign anything, I'd like to see the substance of their investigation. I just want to see what they have found and whether or not, you know, quite honestly, it's relevant. Have other cities who have been in this same position been able to do that? I mean, has, have they ever gotten that kind of request filled by the DOJ? Not that I am aware of. But what you have to remember is Phoenix is different from all the other cities that have entered into consent decrees. Phoenix is governed with the mayor and council, obviously, but it's a city management mayor council form of government. Yeah. So the council itself, there's you know nine of us, eight council members and the mayor we need to vote on these decisions. Other cities where you've seen it happen in Louisville and Baltimore and a few places like that, they have strong mayor setups. So the mayor makes that determination on what they should or shouldn't do. And and that's that's what happens in those situations. So what do you anticipate is coming here from the DOJ? You talked about a lot of smoke, maybe fire. But I mean, even the, the interim chief of the of the police department has said that the results of this are likely going to be really tough. Uh, I'm sure they will be. But let's please, you know, that's what I've been saying all along. Let's look at what they have found. Let's sit down with the DOJ and discuss their findings and how they arrived at the point they arrived at. And I say that based on the fact that I've read through several other consent decrees in several other cities and police departments. So having done that, I noticed in one, and I believe it was Louisville Police Department, they highlighted pretty egregious behavior on the part of police officers within the police department. And They highlighted that. They made a big deal out of it. But what they never said, not a single mention of this in their report, they never mentioned that the police department, upon learning about that that egregious behavior, and in some cases, hours after it happened, fired those individuals. And that wasn't in the report. I think what we, I would love to be able to see us do is sit down with the DOJ, with their investigation, and to 
Let's work through it. Explain these things to us. If there's stuff there, let's deal with it. I'm not saying throw the whole thing out, don't come knocking or anything along those lines. I am saying let's take a hard look at what it is that you have and let's discuss what your findings are and let's make sure everything is in line. I mean, the Phoenix Police Department has been able to work with the the DOJ investigators as they've been in the department for several years now, right? As they've done this, it have, I'm sure they've been able to answer questions, right? They have. The Phoenix Police Department and the city of Phoenix have both provided the DOJ with a great deal of information, everything they've asked for. Let me ask you about what's happened in other cities that have entered into consent decrees with the DOJ as well. There are often concerns about how long they last and the amount of money it costs jurisdictions as well. Are you worried about that? I am very much so. And I think former Sheriff Paul Pinzone really made it a point when he decided not to run for re-election and resign a year early. Yeah. He talked about having to pay for office space and a host of other things for the folks who were overseeing his department. They were never there half the time. And that's not a way to have proper oversight. And you look at how many literally hundreds of millions of dollars that the county and we as taxpayers have spent on that. I just think that's wrong. And it did not give then Sheriff Pinzone the opportunity to deal with things as he saw fit. Mm -hmm. So my position is, you know, when you look at these DOJ investigations, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have them. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that let's sit down and discuss what your findings are and what are we going to do? Because the amount of money that it will take and we will spend it, you know, if this is what happens, the city of Phoenix ends up spending literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I realize that may not sit well with some folks who want to see this happen. Mm -hmm. They want to have oversight, but I hope they consider what the unintended consequences are going to be, because we will then have to make decisions. I say we, the mayor and the council, we will have to make decisions on some budgetary issues and who's going to be impacted by that. So let's talk about the reforms that the Phoenix Police Department has said it will make on its own. I mean, essentially, the department and and many of you here are sort of saying, we'll do this ourselves. We'll fix many of these programs. We don't want to pay for this kind of expensive oversight. It doesn't mean it won't also be expensive. And why do you think, I guess, that the DOJ should kind of trust you on this? Well, I would say look at the history of the Phoenix Police Department. I spent 36 and a half years with Phoenix. So I had an opportunity to understand how we worked. And I will tell you, over the vast majority of my career, Phoenix has always held up as a model police department. I don't believe that that past should be disregarded completely. The Phoenix Police Department was the first major city police department that outfitted the entire patrol division with tasers. And when that happened, our shootings were reduced by something like, if I remember correctly, well over 40-50% from the previous year. There is incident after incident, example after example, where the Phoenix Police Department chartered a new course in a lot of areas and did things before anyone ever asked us to. What would you say, though, to those who are skeptical of that in the community, people who feel like they have been victims of police you know, misconduct? I mean, do you think that that's enough for them? It may not be. And, you know, I, I think I can honestly say I understand exactly where they are coming from. I really do. 
I understand their skepticism. I understand any concerns that they're going to have. But I would also ask them to put their faith in folks like myself, the mayor, other council members, the police chief. And I know what some that may, you know, ring hollow with them. But these are all folks who are committed to public service. What we have to remember, or what I would tell those folks, is police officers have to make decisions in split seconds. And it's easier for us to sit back and, you know, sort of Monday morning quarterback their actions when we're not necessarily right there in the moment. And I'm not saying that means every single use of force or anything like that gets a pass. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I think we have to take everything into consideration. All right. We'll leave it there for now. That is Phoenix City Council member Kevin Robinson, professor at ASU's Watch College in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice as well, and also former Phoenix police officer. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up with a history of marching in protest can teach us about this generation's women's march. But I think that people, and and I'll focus on women and girls and those aligned with them um, who march, I think it's continues to be important that women are visible, um, that that visibility still matters. Why one historian says protests like this still matter in our digital world. But first, as scientists continue to study potential therapeutic uses for psychedelics and a few states have decriminalized them for recreational use, some Native Americans are worried about their use. And it's not just the peyote cactus that has some communities concerned. It's also homegrown and synthetic versions, not to mention the ceremonies connected to the plant that could become the subject of patents by pharmaceutical companies. Annette McGivney has written about this in The Guardian. She's a freelance author and journalist based in Colorado. She spoke with my co-host Mark Brody about her reporting, beginning with how big of a fight there is brewing between the sacred ceremonial use of peyote and the non-tribal medicinal and recreational use. Right. Yeah, I'd say in the non-Native population, there's two distinct groups when it comes to psychedelics, and one is the pharmaceutical industry and uh, companies and entrepreneurs that are looking to monetize synthetic versions or non-synthetic versions for pharmaceutical drug development. And then there is another population of people who are more like earthy grassroots activists who want to decriminalize peyote and other things like psychedelic mushrooms and uh, ayahuasca to have access to those plants in a natural way and to not have them be, be illegal. So there's two different pulls coming at Native American populations who have been using peyote uh, and, you know, the psychoactive element in peyote is mescaline. And they've been using it in a very spiritual way only. Right. Well, so one of the things that I found so fascinating about what you found out reporting the story is that for at least some Native American tribal members, there's a concern about other people 
taking the the naturally grown uh, plant. But there's also a, a separate concern about people trying to grow it in labs and, and leave what's grown naturally to the tribal members. Like it seems like the tribal members are at least some of them are not real thrilled with either of these options. Right, exactly. Because for Native Americans, you know, whether we're talking about peyote or relationships with other plants or landscapes, there's this concept of interconnectedness where peyote is very much a part of the very limited habitat in which it grows. And that's part of what makes it sacred. It only grows in South Texas. And so the idea of growing this cactus in a lab or in a greenhouse, say, you know, in Nebraska or Canada, violates their spiritual beliefs about what makes the plant sacred. What did you hear from folks who are either trying to to use the natural uh, the natural plant or grow it about the concerns that Native Americans have about the sort of expanded use of it? Well, um, I visited with the two camps of people. One is, you know, the plant medicine activists um, and then the pharmaceutical entrepreneurs. So the plant medicine activists had two different responses. One was they were totally oblivious to the Native American worldview and why it would not be okay with them Mm. for someone to just grow a peyote cactus in their home greenhouse. They, They had no idea. Or they were coming up with their own justification saying, well, it's not interfering with Native American spirituality because we're growing the cactus ourselves, so we're not taking it away from its natural habitat. And they kind of come up with their own justification, ignoring what Native Americans were actually saying, that that was a problem. And then the pharmaceutical industry has their own justifications about why they're not infringing on Native American spirituality, which is they're using synthetic mescaline. So they're creating a chemical compounds in a lab that clone the cactus, the psychoactive substance. So they're saying that's okay because we're not actually using the cactus. But for Native Americans and their worldview around interconnectedness and respecting the sovereignty of plants as well as humans, they say it's not okay to clone our sacred cactus. Right. Well, so what do Native Americans say that they can or should be doing about this? Like, is there anything that they feel that they they can do to try to reduce maybe the amount of, of other people who are using this? Well, for the Navajo peyote practitioners that I talked to, who are quite numerous, as well as a a nonprofit organization, the Native American Church of North America, they don't want the pharmaceutical industry to be monetizing peyote or mescaline in any form, synthetic or natural. And they don't want the plant to be decriminalized. And they want the American Indian Religious Freedom Act amendment, which allows only Native Americans to use peyote to be enforced. There is no compromise around peyote for Native peyote practitioners. They want the law to be enforced, which is only Native Americans can use peyote. Does it seem, though, that sort of the the genie can be put back in the bottle, the toothpaste can be put back in the tube here? Because, as you say, there have been 
efforts and some successful efforts to decriminalize it, um, including here in Arizona in terms of studying the effects of, of psychedelics on things like PTSD. I mean, is it possible to maybe roll back some of the efforts that have led to more people using this? Right. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, what uh, the Native American Church of North America and other groups I visited with are, are just wanting to stop, you know, wanting to plug the hole in the dam and keep any more decriminalization efforts from moving forward. You're right. In Arizona, the study of psilocybin mushrooms has been uh, legalized and that's going on and, you know, and that will lead to probably other psychedelics being studied and then eventually decriminalized. And so um, in Colorado, the use of mescaline for study uh, has been decriminalized. And so they can't really stop it, I guess, and roll things back, but they're trying to raise awareness to prevent any more laws from being passed around the decriminalization of mescaline. Well, so if, as you say, there's no compromise on this issue among Native American uh, tribal community members, and there clearly is a desire among non-Native Americans to study this kind of this kind of thing or use this kind of thing, like how do you see this all playing out? Like where does where does this go next? Do you think? Right. Well, I think there are other options besides mescaline and peyote. Um, There is psilocybin mushrooms. There is MDMA, um, the synthetic psychedelic. Um, There's LSD. There's uh, ayahuasca. So so there's other options. And and the Native Americans say, you know, MDMA and psilocybin have already been clinically proven. They're being studied right now. They're much farther along in the treatment of PTSD and addiction can't you just use that? Like, do you have to have it all? Do you have to have mescaline too? You know, can't you leave mescaline for us and use everything else? All right. That is Annette McGivney, a freelance author and journalist based in Cortez, Colorado. Annette, nice as always to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. I enjoyed it. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. On January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump's first full day in office, hundreds of thousands of people took to the street in protest. And the annual Women's March was born. This past Saturday, the eighth annual National Women's March took place, this time here in Phoenix. It was dubbed bigger than Roe and focused on Arizona as a battleground in the fight for abortion rights. Throughout history, women have taken to the streets to fight for the vote, for civil rights, labor rights, and more. But what can marching accomplish in today's divided and digital world? To understand, I sat down with Pam Stewart, an historian and teaching professor emerita at Arizona State University. When we think about women marching in the street, images of suffragettes might come to mind. But Stewart told me the history of women marching goes back much further. 
It does, actually, and especially associated with various, I guess collectively we'd call them labor movements. Mm -hmm. But going back to especially the early 19th century when women were actually being encouraged to come into the factories, work for wages, uh, in good portion because they could be paid a whole lot less than uh, men. Hmm. And so, of course, there were problems, and some of those problems – uh, are things like sexual violence, but also lower pay, unsafe conditions. And so going way back into the early 19th century, you did have instances where women were uh, protesting those situations. Of course, during all of that time, women did not have the right to vote, and they actually didn't really have control over their own bodies, uh, especially within marriage. And so there were a lot of other things that, given the realities of women's lives, over time sort of intersected hmm. um, with that as well. But also issues of uh, racial equality. When there were lynchings, sometimes these things were headed up by someone like Ida B. Wells. For example, there was uh, the so-called East St. Louis riot in 1917, and they decided to have what they termed, or at least some participants termed, a silent march. They would simply mm. walk down the street, tens of thousands of African-Americans. But women actually made the case that they wanted to be viewed as a separate group huh. from the men protesting. So you can find photographs of women as women, most of them all dressed in white, making a visual impact, but also reminding the world that these were women's brothers and sons and and that women themselves were affected by racial violence. It's so interesting to think about women a long time ago having the, I guess, the bravery, the courage to go out and march in the streets for something like labor rights or racial rights, right? Because, I mean, the, I, I can imagine the the blowback on them must have been worse than it might have been for a man at the time. Absolutely. And actually, even though we have images of women uh, marching for suffrage, for example, mm-hmm. one of the most famous marches took place in Washington, D.C. in 1913. And even though a lot of the images show like some of the significant women on horseback or on floats, the reality was it was a very, very dangerous situation. There were men who were pulling women down and off. They were trying to raise their skirts. Some of them violently attacked women. So there were attacks on women and girls. And so you're absolutely right about if, quote, polite society deems the very presence of women in a public space to be improper. Mm -hmm then unfortunately the so-called line of logic goes, well, then we need to enforce the fact that they will not do this uh, again. Hmm. So these absolutely could be very dangerous spaces, uh, and it did take uh, a certain amount of bravery. However, I'll also say I'm someone who thinks that it takes all different types of what we might call activism. And for those who either because of maybe a husband's opinion or their own situation, they did not feel they could be that visible and that public, realize it takes money to keep a movement going, Um, you know, sending in your dollars, cash, doing things we might think of as behind the scene. Um, These were also ways that women have protested and been part of activist movements, even if their names don't end up in the headlines. That's really interesting. 
So let's talk a little bit about what this means today. Um, the Women's March has been happening since Donald Trump was first elected president every year. This year, it's here in Phoenix. The National March is in Phoenix. And we're in a very different landscape than we were even several years ago because the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. I wonder, do you think that women protesting in the street, women marching in a in a visible way, carries the same kind of historic weight that it used to? Or do we live in such a divided world today that it almost feels like only the people who agree with you will even see it? That's a good question. I will say that I think we have the idea that a lot of the protests that women took part in, in decades and centuries past, somehow fundamentally made a difference because we now see where we are. You know, we yeah. look back, yeah. right? But at the time, of course, um, women, just because women marched in, in 1913 does not mean that they got the vote right then, right? So <laughs> there's that component of how we understand that. But I think that people, and, and I'll focus on women and girls and those aligned with them um, who march, I think it's continues to be important that women are visible, hmm. um, that what they are saying, even if you disagree um, that that visibility still matters. Um, that reminder in this very, you know, visible presence uh, sort of way that we're not there yet, that there are still changes that can come. And whether or not uh, one has full reproductive rights, um, abortion rights uh, or not, that it's useful to consider that we still need to look around our world and assess, is this the world you know, we want, are these the laws we want? What can we do to create change? So I I actually think, and it can sound small, but the visibility factor itself matters because, you know, I think there are women that might want to protest every day, but <laughs> but we have January 20th. And so that is going to get some attention. And let's take a look. You've taught for a long time. Did you often or do you often get questions from students about why women still protest, why women still march? Like, didn't we, you know, achieve equality a long time ago, that kind of thing? Um, It's interesting. Yes. But usually it comes in the form of their lived experience as they are reaching a certain age, maybe in the job arena, I had a lot of journalism students, but students in many degree programs. And when what they feel like they should be able to do and what they've been told they're going to be able to do, suddenly they're dealing with, wait, what do you mean I'm not getting paid as much as him? Mm -hmm. Or they're dealing with a boss who comes on to them. One example of that that always drew a lot of that's it's historical. It's not recent, but it's it's sort of a similar response is when students did learn that it might have been legal to march for the vote. But if you did any advocacy, any mailing, any conversations that were also advocating for birth control, that was illegal in the United States. And students are like, wait, you mean they couldn't even say anything. They weren't even supposed to talk about it. Hmm. And it's like, yes. And they they don't understand like why that sort of silencing would happen. But I think we still deal with some of that as well. It, it all kind of goes toward this idea, it seems to me, that that until you know it in your real life, but until you also understand the history of it, it doesn't really mean the same thing. 
yeah, my you know tagline, if we don't know the history, we can't solve the problem. And I think I understand why people sort of resist the historical connections because it can feel like, look, we're not there anymore. This mm-hmm. is a different world. Look at all our technology, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it is useful to reflect on the history and to think what has worked, what continues to work, but what is what is still needed in terms of what others have done. Also, I got to say, history gives us a lot of examples of things that have been successful, <laughs> you know. So it sounds like even in the technology-filled and incredibly divided world that we live in right now, you still think there is some value today and historically to, you know, getting out actually in the street and marching. Yeah, see, seeing the the bodies, you know, three-dimensional and all <laughs> um, um, is, I think, important because, you know, we, we kind of think like, oh, the people that go out in the streets, especially if we look at something like the civil rights movement or whatever, oh, they, they must have just been really brave. And I'm not brave, so I can't do that. Hmm. You know, <laughs> I don't know that any of them were any braver than you or I, and they were literally putting their lives on the line. And so they didn't do it because they were predetermined to be gifted with bravery. They did it because this is what they felt they had to do. And it allows me, history has allowed me to keep perspective on, you know, what what is fear, what is courage, and the fact that maybe I can do at least a minimum in a way that other people have given their all. Yeah. All right. I'll leave it there. Pam Stewart, historian and teaching professor emerita at Arizona State University, joining us. Pam, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. As wildfires have become more severe over the past several years, researchers are taking a new look at the role of prescribed burns in trying to reduce their number. A paper in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment makes the argument that prescribed burns can and should be used more often. John Williams is an ecologist at UC Davis and project scientist in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy. He spoke with my co-host Mark Brody about this new research, and they started with what question he was trying to answer here? Well, we've been uh, monitoring prescribed fire, mostly in California, for the last five years. And putting, basically, we've been putting in these monitoring plots across the state, and less than 50% of those plots have burned. And so we've seen a, a whole number of reasons why the prescribed fire that's been planned isn't, isn't happening. It's not getting done. And we wanted to examine that. Uh, in light of the importance of prescribed fire in doing a few things. One is uh, reducing the risk of high severity fire. And second is restoring the natural fire processes for these ecosystems that are adapted to fire and have experienced fire suppression for a long time, in some cases over 100 years. Well, so why did you, why did you see that, that some of these prescribed burns weren't happening? There's a bunch of reasons. Um, some of them are weather related, and so climate and extreme fire years. So 2020, for example, is the biggest fire year on record for California. And when it's hot and dry, and the fires are, are the wildfires are burning, all the resources that would be available for, for prescribed fire are basically being usurped by the need to, to put out wildfire and to, and to suppress wildfire. 
so that's the, on the resource side. On the other side is just the, the fire weather itself makes it unsafe um, to to do these prescribed fires. It's usually a certain level of uh, relative humidity, cooler temperatures, uh, minimal winds, uh, so that you can achieve your objectives rather than run the risk of having that fire get out of control and become a wildfire itself. So this maybe falls specifically on the resource side, but maybe expands beyond that. I wonder if the fact that, quote unquote, wildfire season has been extended in many places, does that reduce the the time windows in which you can do prescribed burns? And maybe to the point you were making about weather conditions needing to be right, does it maybe make it harder to do prescribed burns in the times when it's ideal to do them if there are also actual wildfires happening at those same times? Absolutely. Absolutely. So generally the prescribed fire happens either in the spring or the fall when temperatures are, are cooler and the humidity levels are, are up a little bit. And as those, as that wild sort of the hot dry conditions extend uh, later in the fall and start earlier in the, in the summer, that kind of squeezes the, the, the prescribed burn season. And that's especially um, aggravated by the fact that a lot of people that are that would normally be available to conduct uh, prescribed fires are seasonal employees. So especially this is especially the case in the Forest Service, Park mm-hmm. Service. There's a lot of seasonal employment that that as those, as we get into winter months, for example, they they're on they're furloughed you know for the season because they're not they're not year round hires. And so one of the things we talk about in the article is the need to establish a year-round prescribed fire force so that as that fire season sort of pushes into the extent of, of when seasonal employees uh, are available, we can now, we could then shift to maybe a year-round force that would be available. Also a year-round force that, that is dedicated to prescribed fire so that they don't get pulled off onto wildfires. What kind of resources would that entail? Like if you're basically setting up a new division, it sounds like, uh, you know, within the Forest Service or wherever it would be, what kind of resources would it take to make sure that there was a group of people with the the money and equipment they need to just focus on prescribed burns? Yeah, it would require establishing these permanent positions and it would it require, you know, it could be a, it could be a cooperative type uh, force in the sense of it doesn't necessarily have to be just forest service or just park service or just Cal Fire. Um, and that's one of the other things we suggest in the article is the need to to really collaborate in terms of of uh, resources and personnel but it would take it would take additional money. But there's certainly the I mean, we're some 30 million acres in California alone are in need of uh, basically they're beyond the normal fire return interval. So so there's a huge need for it. Uh, and so we can definitely keep them busy. Um, but but it would require additional resources. Yeah. I wonder if it would also require somewhat of maybe like a, a culture shift within the, the Forest Service. You mentioned fire suppression, which has been the policy for so long. If you were re- to really focus and, and maybe even have a dedicated force focused on prescribed burns, would that require maybe a, a change in thinking um, among fire managers as well? For sure, and especially at the upper levels, um, and, and it's not just the Forest Service. It's it's the Forest Service. It's Cal Fire, which is there are definitely ecologists and and a lot of prescribed burners in Cal Fire, but it's fundamentally a fire suppression agency. And so uh, across these agencies, there's a need for a, a cultural shift where rather than saying, okay, under what conditions is 
is prescribed fire acceptable, start to ask, why didn't we get more prescribed fire done? What were the conditions that made for exceptional circumstances that we couldn't do burning? Do you have a sense of how far behind we are in terms of doing the prescribed burns that would really make it an appreciable difference to try to mitigate against large, massive, severe wildfires? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's, uh, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there's in California alone, there's 30 million acres of forest that, you know, their natural fire cycle is on average is somewhere between five and 35 years. And so some of those forests uh, haven't burned in a hundred years. So it's going to be a long time before we, we catch up enough and we have the force workforce enough to address this on the, the entire landscape level. So I think really right now we're more, to be honest and, and, and more um, realistic, I think the, the likelihood is we're going to have to concentrate on high-value areas, areas where we have assets, where prescribed fire is, is, is giving us a little bit of a buffer. And, and in the meantime, we're going to have to let wildfire uh, kind of take care of some of the rest because we just don't have the capacity and it's not gonna, we're not going to have the capacity for, for a while. You need to prioritize where you can do the, the most good immediately and then get to the rest of it later. Exactly. And those are, as I said, those are places like the, the wildland urban interface where we ha- where people have homes, is areas of uh, at risk, maybe wildlife or, or high value or watersheds, upper levels of watersheds. You know, the spotted owl or the Pacific fisher are two wildlife species, for example, that, that there's a mandate to pay attention to as far as what their, how much of their habitat and how risk, at risk that is for fire. But at least in the short term, we're going to have to kind of address those needs. All right. That is John Williams, an ecologist and project scientist in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy at the University of California, Davis. John, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Award season is upon us. We have had the Golden Globes, the Emmys, and there was outrage yesterday when Oscar snubbed Barbie director Greta Gerwig. But today we're leaving the screen for the restaurant scene with this morning's announcement of the semi-finalists for this year's James Beard Award. It's considered the Academy Awards of the food and beverage industry. Arizona's on the map with a nod for outstanding restaurateur for Armando Hernandez and Nadia Holguin, the couple behind fan favorite tacos Chiwas, and the upscale Cocinas Chiwas. Robert Centeno of Espiritu in Mesa is up for Emerging Chef, and a Persian spot in Phoenix called Ava Bakery was nominated as Best New Restaurant. Valentine's Crystal Cast is up for Best Pastry Chef, and others on the semifinalist list include Andrioli Italian Grocer in Scottsdale and the Phoenix Bar Little Rituals. And five Arizona chefs are up for Best Chef in the Southwest, including the chefs at Bacanora, Glybon, and Source. And now I'm hungry. Good luck to everyone. All right, that'll do it for today's Wednesday edition of the show. We will be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more as always. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site.
I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.